Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 229. I'm your host, Derek Moore. With me once again, after a well-deserved week off, is my semi-permanent co-host, Jay Pestercelli, CEO of Zega Financial. Jay, what is going on today? Hey, Derek. Well, thank you for having me back. I really missed it. I appreciated the break, but I am very glad to be back. You asked what is going on today, right? Like there is a big number this morning, right? Um, I don't think it matters anymore, but you do. You, you still think it matters. Why? CPI we're talking about. We are talking about the CPI number. It came in lower than expected. Um, I don't know. The market seemed to react pretty well. Shot up 1% before we, just about 1% in pre-market. Feels like that matters a little bit. Uh, and then it also impacted the bond market. So why do, so you and I definitely go back and forth on this, right? I think it's, um, I think because, I, and I know your rationale, so I'm going to let you get to your part. So I'll, I'll make my first statement. You tell me I'm wrong, and then I'll tell you why I'm right. So I think it's because there's so much, uh, there's been so much uh, uh, kind of pent up discussion and anxiety around inflation now over, gosh, what are we talking now, uh, 15 months, that, uh, you know, the market just kind of has to react to this kind of a number. There is an old adage which says, don't fight the Fed. And when CPI comes in low, the Fed probably does less work, less tightening. And that's a good thing, right, for the market in general. So I think it still matters because uh, as the Fed goes, the market can go in general. And uh, I think just historically, that has mattered. So that, that's my first position. Why don't you go beat that up a little bit? I think the market's fighting the Fed and winning. I mean, it's don't fight the Fed. This year, they're fighting the Fed. Because the Fed has been raising rates. They said they were going to raise rates. And we've bounced off the October lows on a total return basis. I think we're only around 5.8% under the all-time high. And it's probably 6.8%. I think, you know, uh, Mick on our investment committee pointed out it's about 6.8% on a price basis. Market's winning. The heck with you, Fed. So what, Jay Powell? Keep raising your rates. To your point, though, and you can comment on that, but I mean, it's, I think it matters a little. It matters because if we saw a print of something like, you know, 0.5% month over month, or, and I think honestly, it's, it's the month over month that matters now. The, the year over year starts to become irrelevant because it's the, uh, the base effects. Last June was one of the, the biggest rises in CPI. And so when you're comparing against last June, it's not going to be as, as, you know, as crazy. But I'll buy it, Jay. But I, I think the market's winning. And I, when I say it doesn't matter, it's the market's not going up like 5% or going down 5% every time we have a, a CPI number. You know, you, you, if you didn't know CPI came out today, you'd just be like, oh, okay, market was up today. And it's been up other days, Shay. Yes, 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 yes. Look, there were a few times last year where the market moved a tremendous amount based on the CPI number, right? The one you just called out June of last year. I think in three days, the first day it gapped down and then two days later continued to go down. I think the market was down 10% in three days. It's a pretty big move, all CPI driven. I think there was some Fed commentary in the middle of all that, but uh, nonetheless, it was all an inflation data point. And then in November... 
the exact opposite happened. I think uh, like the November number when it came out, I think the market moved up like 5%. The NASDAQ moved up 7% in a day. So those days, I agree with you, are behind us. Does the market still have some, uh, you know, hopes that there's, you know, going to be some volatility based on that number and there's some, you know, quick action when they get the number? I, I still think so. You can't forget those big movers that there's always a chance. It's almost like, you know, on Jobs Friday or on a Fed day, right? Those mornings or, or afternoons when those, when the, you know, the information comes out, markets just move, right? And you're right. It could be short-lived. So I will give it to you that today on a chart is relatively unremarkably different than what, you know, the previous four months have looked like. I'm going to tell you why the month to month matters and, and not the year over year anymore. And it's the rate of change. And if I did my math correctly, today was what? 0.2%. So 0.2%. And if you compound it over the next 12 months at that rate, it's roughly what? 1.5-ish, 1.45, something around there. Uh, 0.3. So 0.2 or 3% month over month inflation, if we compounded that every month over the next 12 months, it's just under 3.7. So, you know, I can't do, uh, I'm doing this sort of live as, but uh, this tells me, you know, it's like 0.21% and change. If that's the month over month, every month that gets you to 2%. And that's what the Fed has said their target is. So to me, it's all about the month to month. I think it's right in the middle of their target. Yep. Yeah. And so, so what do you so let's let's take that to uh, market expectation, right? At that point, does it make any sense? Do you think the Fed raises in that scenario? Probably not, right? You think they're done? I guess that's a different debate we can have, which I'm happy to have. I, I think they want to do one more because Jay Powell is saying, don't you dare go buy GameStop and take a second mortgage in your house to buy 10 Delta calls on it. Like he doesn't, I don't think they like this speculation. I don't think they want, they're afraid of, of saying, no, no, we're done. This is it. Inflation is over and the market just goes up and up and the asset bubble inflates. I mean, don't you think that's part of it too? And, and they're just going to do one more because we said we can do it. You know, I, so, I mean, the market certainly agrees with you. I don't know. Uh, so like, like you said, we're doing this live and let me take a look what the Fed fund futures looks like. I don't know if you looked before we hopped on today. But the market has certainly been anticipating that. And when I look at the probabilities, it's still over 90% that on the July 26th meeting, they will raise rates. But that looks like about it. So I actually don't think they do. I don't think there's any reason they paused. It's a little bit of an inertia thing. But if the that, you know, they, they stop, they should stop, right? You did it. Like you, you kind of stop. Raising rates is what the market expects. So they may do it because they can get away with it without causing disruption. Uh, you know, I don't know why they would have stopped the previous month. So I'm definitely, uh, you know, I don't have a dog in this fight, but uh, I don't know. I don't think they w w raise. I mean, I don't, they stopped. They stopped before. Like, why would you stop and start up again? It doesn't make any sense to me. I think you're right on the message, right? They have two tools. They can change rates and they can talk about changing rates. And they've been talking about rates, right, for a long, long time. And so they want to keep things down. 
um, you know, that keep the, 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 sorry, when I say down the surprise level down, right. They don't want to shock the market, but I also think they want to try to keep, uh, you know, activity down and there's no holding down this consumer right now, Derek, right. Spending is still up and they're not going to have an impact if they actually don't take a, take a whack at the economy. And they've, they've tried, they have definitely tried. And what do you think? Do you think they made a difference? In the economy? No. No, I don't think so either. No. This is all fiscal. This is all, um, you know, when the Fed creates um, money out of thin air, it goes, I'm simplifying this, Jay, of course, and you know this, but I mean, it, it winds up on a bank balance sheet. They buy a treasury. But when you send people money directly in checks and offer all sorts of different other programs, which go directly to people, it's clear that's really effective, but it also at a time when there's supply constraints. Here, here's even more money, so we increase demand more. Good job, federal government. You did, you know, you caused inflation. You did what the Fed couldn't do for over a decade by keeping rates low. But no, I mean, I I agree, Jay. I mean, it's it's um, uh, yeah. I mean, let's. I think we're good on this, right? I mean, it is what it is. I think we're good on it. CPI, Fed, inflation. They probably raise and. You know, it probably is ineffective and you think they're doing it just for the optics. Got it. Well, the other thing, too, is I don't think interest rates really matter. I think what matters more is the behind the surface stuff. Like, what are we going to do with the reverse repo market? What are we going to do about, I mean, they're still lowering their balance sheet, although they sort of lowered it, but then increased it with the bank bailout that wasn't a bailout. Like, there's a lot of, no one's even talking about that. They're letting run off, what is it, $100 billion a month now? That's kind of significant. That was a big deal when they announced, hey, we're going to stop buying. It's still hilarious that they were still buying mortgage bonds and treasury bonds right up until they were raising rates. I mean, anyway. All right. I want to, I want to switch to, to hedging, Jay, something uh, near and dear to our hearts. And of course, you wrote a book called uh, Buy and Hedge. Very clever. Instead of buy and hold, buy and hedge. And Jay, I got to say, if, if people missed out on, on buying something, uh, presents for maybe July 4th. Labor Day is coming up and no better time to go and pick up your book. And uh, uh, you can pick up uh, also my book, which is Broken Pie Chart. So great, great pairing there. They do pair nicely. They they really do. But hedging though is near and dear to our hearts. And I, I had a conversation with somebody the other day and it went like this. It said, hey, you know, Meta is up like... Uh, they're actually up 250% off the November lows. And this person's comment was, you know what? I wish I would have just all these years just been holding meta and instead of, you know, being diversified in the market. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, when, when did you buy it? <laughs> when, when would you have theoretically bought it? Because even though it's up 250% off the November lows, it had declined 77% off the high in September of 2021. And because of that, it's still down 20% off the all-time high. And Meta is easy because it doesn't have a dividend. You know, it's just a price return. You don't have a total return. So Jay, I looked back and I was just curious and we used our, our software that we like. And I said, you know what, what if in September of 2021, the all-time high, you would have just bought a put about 20% down. The cost of that would 
be on an annual basis would be about 4.8%. So you could have bought a put for about $18.50. If you wanted to do a 10% down hedge, what about about an 8% annualized cost of hedging? I want to, the reason why I bring this up is one, it, it, when I was having this conversation, they were shocked that it's still down, but it also reminds, and you had this right in your book. If you lose this, this is what you have to get to make back whatever it is you may need to make back to get to break even. Jay, I mean, to me, and I don't know, you know, would somebody have wanted to, to hedge 10% down and pay 8% uh, of the stock in option premium? I don't know, or 4.8%. But this to me is like the classic, yeah, this is another reason why to be hedged, right? Yeah. So so let's just uh, unwind that a little bit. So you're right. If you want to give, if you bought at the high, and maybe somebody didn't have that exact wrong timing, but if you really wanted to know how much Meta needed to appreciate in stock price to get back to the previous high, I think the number is something like 340% gets you back you know, going from 88 bucks back up to 384 bucks, right? I think it's 340% if you do that math. Yeah, if that's all you owned and you rode that down, even if you didn't buy it, right, at the all-time high, let's say you did buy it, I don't know, five years ago when it was trading at, let me get a price five years ago, when it was trading at $218, right? You would have felt great running up into September of 2021. You know, in at the end of 2022, Right. You would have you would have felt the pain of that. Right. And even though you'd say, well, I'm only down half, you're still down half. Like that's not a great long term strategy, because when you're down half, you need 100 percent appreciation to get back to even. Right. If you have 50, if you had a dollar, you lost half, you went to 50 cents, you need to double that 50 cents to get back to a dollar. That's the math that you're talking about there. Yeah, I know it's you know, people think through that all the time. Like, oh, if it's down 70, I just need 70 to get back. Nope, it's not the way that it works. Um, the other point about being hedged, Eric, you're right. We actually have clients that hold meta and you know what? We hedged them. We absolutely did. And we helped avoid a big chunk of their loss, especially when it had that large gap down back in, uh, I think it was, was it February 2022, right? They had a really bad earnings uh, number. They talked about all the expenses, I think, or maybe meta was failing. I don't know, the metaverse, whatever their issue was. I think um, their attempt at the rebrand wasn't going great. And everybody got nervous and ran for the hills. And uh, having a hedge on definitely helped those clients avoid uh, some of the losses. Now, are they back to where they started? Actually, they are because we took profits on that hedge. We left the position on. We probably rehedged it once or twice more, but sold calls along the way to help pay for it. All of those tactics help reduce the volatility of the portfolio. And I'm going with all of this is we like to say that volatility is kryptonite for portfolio returns. You want to take out those peaks and valleys and have a much smoother set of returns, right? A portfolio that, you know, makes 10% or let's say loses 10% and makes 11% is better than a portfolio that, you know, makes 30 and uh, loses 25, right? Because of the volatility of the portfolio. So all that being said, Derek, I'm with you uh, that uh, just, I, I, it's funny somebody had that conversation with you because every meta conversation I've had in the last year plus has definitely been, you know, not a good one because they've been concerned about the price, but happy they were hedged. Interesting. You had the opposite discussion. Yeah. I mean, and 
And I like that you did the math right there. Yeah, 340%. I mean, imagine that. It's like, okay, I need 340% just to get back to break even. Like that's, and it's just math. I mean, it's just, this is why, you know, the, the, the less you lose and we like to hedge, the, the better off you are in the long term. And this is a podcast, but if it was, you know, if we were doing this live on the screen, you've always had that great chart where you ask people, do you want portfolio A, B, C, or D? And everyone picks this one that looks like over time would return the best. And it's actually the other portfolio. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, I don't know. It, the fact that the, you know, the market too, and we like to buy the market and be hedged as well. I mean, that's, that's just kind of like a second derivative to that. But the idea that the market is only down, you know, about 5.8% on a total return basis, but Meta is still down 20%. It's, I think it surprises some people, but, um, and yeah, I mean, Jay, you know, we work with people who have large concentrated stock positions. Maybe they worked at a company and they got shares and their cost basis is almost zero and we help them hedge it. So it's not like we're unfamiliar with dealing with individual stocks, but, um, yeah. All right. I think we, we got that enough. By the way, speaking of volatility, I looked, you know, September of 21, I think the cost of hedging was relatively cheap, which doesn't surprise me because nobody wants to hedge when we're at all time highs. Everyone's like, no, I'm good. I got this. Like, I, I don't need anything. It's a, it's an interesting paradox, you know, because um, when volatility is low and hedging is cheap, um, it ends up being, you know, the best time to do it because it's on sale. And usually it's after the market has had some level of appreciation, right? Because the fear is gone. The market goes up. The market has this kind of self-reinforcing dynamic where people go, oh, the market's up. Must be good. I'm not so scared, right? And we're going through a little bit of that right now. Be nicer if we had a little better, uh, uh, you know, dispersion of along the returns amongst different stocks versus the concentration. But still, there's a lot of folks that are like, I guess that we got the all clear signal only because the market is up. Um, that happens and it drives down volatility. And it turns out it's kind of the best time to, 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 to spend your money on your insurance, right? I've used the example in the past, um, if there was such a thing as hurricane insurance, Buying it, you know, at the beginning of hurricane season in Florida, it's going to be more, it's going to be expensive. Buying it while there's a hurricane forming off the coast of Africa on the way across the Atlantic to Florida, it's going to be very expensive. But buying it after November's over and hurricanes are done, it's going to be pretty cheap. So it's just, it's one of those things that there's a little bit of a strangeness that the best time to hedge when the market is up and you want to lock in the gains that you had is probably when it is the most cheapest. It's not always that way, but generally it works that way. And when the market is bad and selling off, hedging is very expensive, but it's too late at that point, right? Who's paying for that after the market sold off 20%, right? Well, I guess some people do, and that's what happens because then the fear gets uh, into their investment thesis and they're willing to pay up because they've had enough. Well, you, you probably should have done nothing in that scenario. So- yeah, sorry, went off on a little tangent there, Derek. But you know, volatility and the cost of uh, buying protection are absolutely linked. Your chapter five is capital lost is capital that cannot grow. That's the, the title of chapter five. And that sounds catchy. Oh wait, that's my book. Yeah, yeah, that's your book. That's your <laughs> book. Yeah, no, that was. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's, and I think in chapter five, I'm just looking, because you you did the same thing I did, where we have kind of the little summary, the lessons. Um, and it's this idea of compounding growth. Growth is one of the most powerful forces an investor can put to work for his or her portfolio. And the gain from avoiding a loss is more than just the loss avoidance itself. It is also the benefits from compounded growth on the capital that is preserved. And I think maybe if you were doing a re-edit or a rewrite, you probably would say the fact sometimes being hedged helps save people from themselves where they sort of panic and sell at the lows, stay out of the market. You know, imagine someone who is in meta and that was their only stock and we don't have, we don't advocate for that. But imagine, you know, they rode all the way down and said, you know, I've had enough. I'm going in cash. This thing's really scary. And they missed out on this 250% gain which is still 20% down from the all-time high. I think that's, if I was doing a rewrite on that, I think that's one of the benefits as well of hedging for sure. I, I think, Derek, that's a great suggestion and I will get right on the rewrite. Yeah, right when we start on that, that other book, we, we're gonna, we were going to write last year or next year or the year after. Coming soon, it's coming. Right? We should put a cover I, I, out. <laughs> we should do a cover and then it's just coming soon and we'll, we'll always just update the... We'll just keep pushing it out, right? Just keep updating the cover. Lessons. What were we going to call it? Lessons uh, from a volatility seller. Was that was that our topic? Was it lessons from thirty years of selling volatility, or or twenty years? <laughs> it will be forty years before before we get the book out. But oh my gosh, no kidding, right? All right. Uh, speaking of volatility, yeah. Go yeah, ahead, so let's jump, let's jump right. Well, I was gonna I was gonna do the same uh, transition here to talking about the markets and volatility. So why don't you hit me with your question because it's. I think we're ready to talk about that. Yeah. So the VIX as of the close today, um, what would the VIX close today, Jay? I closed that my trade. 13 and a half. Something around 13 and a half. 13 and a half. Jay, the market is doing well this year. Nobody seems to to fear inflation anymore. Uh, The the trade, we're trading, you know, 19 point what? Three, 19.4 times forward earnings. Uh, why isn't the VIX at 10? Why is it still 13 and a half, Jay? Well, look, the, the VIX, so maybe we'll do a quick uh, reminder, right? The VIX is the mathematical representation of the implied volatility of S&P options that average about 30 days. I think that's the quick, quick, uh, quick spiel on VIX. And so what that means is the more people are willing to pay for options, the higher the VIX will go right? Everybody talks about the VIX as the fear index. I talk about it more as a speculative index because the VIX can go up when calls get more expensive, just as much as puts can get more expensive. So why aren't people willing to pay more for options? So when you ask your question of, hey, why is the VIX 13 and why is it not less? The way I interpret that question as how come people are still willing to pay up as much as they are for options, right? For, you know, shorter term 30 day options. And because if you think it's 10, that means people uh, are willing to, aren't willing to pay with their current prices. They want it cheaper, right? If you want options to be cheaper and you're waiting for it, that's when your VIX gets lower. That's when you're buying. So to answer your question, Dark, I think there's still some embedded, you know, uh, concerns about the market. You, we've run up pretty darn quickly. Um, the most bullish person on our investment committee has even said to me, 
Yeah, that seems like a pretty quick run up in the market that we've had, right? So I think there's always this natural inclination for people to have a downside bet on after you've had a run up like we've had this year. I think we ended the the quarter, right? The end of the half of the year at like a plus 16 on the S&P. That's, that's a pretty good first half of the year. Uh, so I think that there's some premium, a little premium left in the options because investors are willing to, you know, throw a speculative bet on the downside and that's keeping premium up. So how's that one? I, I took a different turn. I didn't know where you were going on that one, but I think people are keeping it up because of the quick run up. Um, and by the way, I don't think a VIX of 13 is particularly high. I actually think it's low. It shows a lot of complacency in the market. But why is it not 10? I think people are still willing to throw those bets on the table. And hey, if I hit one of these every once in a while, it's worth losing five or six of them in a row. You and I know that volatility takes the helicopter to the top of the mountain and has to walk down. It takes a long time for volatility to drop after you've had a quote-unquote high volatility regime. We've seen this in 2008-2009 period. It was uncanny again, 2020. I'm just looking at some numbers. You know, we, we do calculations every day on any number of volatility things. And if I go to the October lows in the market, we were pushing 34 on the VIX. So the fact that we're down at 13, I agree, Jay, it's not really that, that low of a number or that high of a number. I think everybody got conditioned back from 2017, 2018, 2019, when the VIX was very, very low. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's there's still some fear. And I think the the standard deviation of the VIX or the uh, the range of the VIX has also been fairly volatile. And I think that represents kind of what the these different seesaw of momentum and people's thinking about what's going to happen. You know, if I look at the last uh, week or so, we've been ever, anywhere from 13 and a half to 15 and a half, you know, just about. So that kind of shows there's a little bit of a, a range. The other thing, Jay, sometimes we look at is the VIX, which is the volatility of the VIX. And, you know, the volatility on VIX options is still pretty robust as well, meaning that they, yeah, I mean, what do you see there? Anything? Yeah, so the, the VIX, as you just said, just like the VIX is a representation of the implied volatility of the S&P, the VIX is a representation, representation of the implied volatility of the VIX options. So it's not a measurement necessarily of how much the VIX has moved. It's a measurement of what investors, traders are willing to pay up for VIX options. Typically, they're buying calls, right? So calls on the VIX are, is, a, is, a, is a bet that the VIX will spike. And that happens when the market drops, right? So, uh, all of the it's almost like a reverse a re, of a reverse there, right? But the thing about the VVIX options trading in the nine, mid nineties, right, still tells you that someone's willing to pay up quite a bit of money to have on a VIX option, which, in all fairness, most of that volume is on the call side. Uh, it tells you that there's some fear. So a more sophisticated option trader may decide to trade a VIX option instead of an S&P, SPX or SPY option. Uh, and that's what, that's what it indicates. It's still in, you're right, it's in what I would say a moderate range. I think for where the VIX is trading, 
that number is probably a little elevated. So let's say the more sophisticated money that trades VIX options probably has a little bit more uh, concern about a market decline than uh, the general, uh, you know, average Joe who's buying uh, SPY calls and puts. Did you see, and by the way, I should, I won't say which trade it was, but we've had in the past one of our trades be highlighted on a prominent financial news network, we'll say. But I sure. saw, <laughs> um, <laughs> this was a, an investor placed a bet on Thursday morning. So this would have been Thursday, July 6th. And the trade was an investor placed a bet on Thursday morning that the CBO volatility index known as the VIX, will soar above 45 by mid-October. So think about, now these are options on a VIX future, and the VIX future is a little bit different than the VIX you see on TV. But this trader bought 83,000 call contracts expiring uh, October 18th, worth about $4.5 million. Now, we don't know the size of the portfolio they're doing this. could be a billion dollars, so 4.5 would be nothing. But they bought 27,700 VIX calls with a strike price of 27 in October. Uh, and that made, uh, I think this was in Yahoo Finance, also in Bloomberg. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting that that was on July 6th. Um, that could be a hedge. We don't know what they were hedging. We don't know if it was just a speculative trade. That's the thing. You know, a lot of times you see these in the news and you have no idea what the context is. But you sort of see these go go off every once in a while. and uh, Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It's actually interesting when you take a look at that October expiration on the VIX at like the 45, 47 and a half and the 50 level, there's a couple hundred thousand, like maybe it's 400,000 open contracts at that level on the call side. There's nothing on the put as we talked about a minute ago. But yeah, I mean, there are, uh, that's the kind of a thing that those, you know, you're right. We don't know the underlying piece, but that long call purchase of buying options on the VIX is something that, you know, will keep the VVIX elevated, right. And sort of represent, um, you know, what, uh, what the market is, you know, looking out for, by the way, as, as, uh, as kind of a, co- a way of comparison, when you look at the options that expire, let's say at the end of, uh, let's just say August, right. Cause that way you get a full month out there. There are, you know, Hundreds of thousands traded at the twenty, uh, the twenty strike price, uh, hundred thousand open interest on the eighteen. So these are kind of the normal things. There's two hundred and fifty thousand open contracts at the twenty five level. So there are just some regular regimented trading strategies that are just constantly buying VIX calls. And you know, probably when you when you think about these things, probably one out of five of them end up not being a full loss. And so their hope is in that in that type of a strategy, which is, look, if there's a major sell-off, I've got leveraged exposure to profit if there's a really scary market event. Um, because it is not leveraged in their risk, but the upside capture start to expand, starts to expand very, very quickly. If you spend 50 cents on an option and then it's worth 10 bucks at expiration, that's a pretty leveraged, uh, that's a nicely leveraged uh, gain, right? So you know, this is a very regular regimen, Derek. The other reason I was going to say before, when you said, why is the VIX, you know, not lower, there are just firms that are always hedging, right? There are certain requirements of financial institutions that they must have some protection against 
quick and rapid market sell-offs. And I don't mean little firms, I mean big banks, right? So they are required to kind of hedge some of their market exposure. Easiest way to do it, options on the S&P or options on the NASDAQ. So I think all of that is kind of regular, regular flow uh, into the options market. But the, the so I think I answered your question there on what's going on in the options market with VIX. But I'm going to pivot a second and say to you, like, what would it take for the VIX to get back to like the 20 to 30 regime that we saw in the past? What are the things that caused that to happen? And does that I liked your helicopter analysis or analogy. What you know, what's the kind of stuff that will drive that? Well, it's I think earnings. I think we're coming up to earnings season and the expectations is earnings will be down six, about six percent year over year. So Q2 of 22 to Q2 of 23, the quarter that just ended. I think that's got to be one. It doesn't appear, you know, if if there is a recession or we may have been in a recession, I can debate that. I think there's, you could actually say we've been in a mild recession, but I'll leave that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a more aggressive Fed employment that Wages that keep going up or I, I don't know, Jay, but I, I think earnings, if you have a bunch of companies, flow earnings, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's really it. like we we started this conversation today that CPI and the Fed really aren't a, a huge market impact. I said it matters. You said it doesn't. I think we agree. It could have a little push one way, a little nudge. But, you know, when you think about the things right now that are driving the market, um, it's not that. Right. I mean, we always have global risk, right? Global event risk. I'm glad you didn't go there with your answer. But uh, you're right. I think it has to be corporate earnings. You and I have always said there's two things that drive market price. It's corporate earnings and it's interest rates. Well, interest rates have probably peaked out. Maybe they got another, you know, wiggle higher here uh, and they'll probably stay where they are. So seems like that market is, by the way, I'll probably be completely wrong about that statement I just made. But right now, that's the way it seems. Um, so interest rates are okay. Seems to be less of a, of, a, of an unknown. So it has to be corporate earnings that would be the thing that drives this. That would drive volatility, you know, significantly higher. And so that person that took that bet that you know the VIX would be up. Would you say forty five was kind of their break even? Um, they're counting on significant a significant miss. When it comes to corporate earnings, it has to be across the board because that's a long, long bet to take. Was the strike and and the VIX expiration is seventeen right now, so and that's that's another thing. Even if short term VIX spiked, that one may not spike as much. But um, but yeah, I mean, I I think that's what you were saying there. I mean, you need a significant to get in the money on that. You you need a significant push higher, right? And it, and it kind of has to stay there for a little bit, right? It does. Like if it pops, that option is going to be pretty lazy. We, we use that term. I said that term to somebody who was just learning options. They said, I don't remember seeing lazy in the options book. Which, which metric is that? And I said, well, a, a lazy option isn't, you know, an exact metric. Well, the, we talk about that because you have factors like, you know, the underlying price moves, but there's a lot of time left and there's a change in volatility. All of those things will keep option prices from doing exactly what you think on the day that you have an event. And VIX options are notoriously lazy because they're not tied to the spot VIX, they're tied to the future, as you mentioned earlier. So the futures are more of, uh, you know, what does the trade floor think the VIX will go to versus what the math of the index says 
right? So they're different products, obviously related, but, uh, you know, people have to be careful of that. And so for that person uh, who took that bet to be right, you would have to have a pretty, so you'd have to be well over that 27 level and you'd have to be up there long enough for the market to believe that it'll stay above 27 into October. So if you, so for example, Derek, if we went to 27 in the month of August, let's say we went to 40 or 30 in the month of August, and then we started to decline, those options still could be worthless, even though their strike price was 27, because the futures market might not believe that it'll be above 27 in October. Oof, that was a lot. Sorry. The thing with VIX, future, VIX options, because they're, they're VIX options on the future, you can't trade or buy options on the thing you see on TV. Normally with options, you have to be right on the direction. You also have to be right on time and you have to be right in the actual instrument you're going to use. With VIX options, it's actually a, kind of like a fourth thing. You have to choose which future you're doing it. Not Are you doing the August future, the October future, the December future? There's like this fourth dimension and any number of things. So it gets a little bit a little bit tough to uh, to go through there. I don't know. I mean, maybe like commercial real estate. Is that another thing that everyone says is going to collapse, but maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe the banks are like, yeah, we don't really want all these properties. Let's just work it out. We're going to extend the loan. We're going to figure out the terms. Does that do it? Does, I mean, employment, if employment finally drops, that could cause some issues, but but what's the employment drops? It hits corporate earnings, right? I mean, that's the that's the relationship. But there's always something, you know, when you see these really big moves, sometimes it's just nothing anyone's looking at. And that happens. I mean, you think back sometimes when we, like August of uh, 20, was it 2014, 2015? 15. Yeah. China devaluates their currency and there's a sort of spillover thing. 1998. The uh, Malaysian rigot uh, gets kind of out of whack and the Russian ruble and all that stuff. And there's a snowball, the Asian contagion. The Malaysian rigot? Where, oh, well, yeah. That's a good one. Dude. I haven't heard that one from you before. Sorry, I chuckled. <laughs> I hope it didn't come out well, like the, as a big laugh out loud. Oh, no, it's great. The Thai bot, Malaysian rigot. Uh, we'll do we'll do a two-hour episode on that one, Jay. That's, that's a special one. I might be it's out that the, week. Stuff, yeah, you may be. But you know what I mean? There's like stuff just happens that comes up. And you mentioned, you even said, you're like, hey, I'm glad you didn't talk about some global thing. Because, I mean, in the 90s, it was like, oh, this country was going to do this. Like, there's always a wall of worry that something's going to happen globally. It's like, it's always there. Uh, for a while, it was, you know, you know what I mean, Jay? Like, I, it, to me, those, and thankfully, you know, knock on wood, a lot of times that didn't really cause too much problem. Even when we had different wars, I mean, the market's higher than when the Russian thing started. I think their currency is higher than when it started. So I don't know. What do I know, Jay? Look, these are all, we're just, you know, we're trying to talk about the shock and awe on the market. And it's got to be pretty dramatic to push the volatility up and to get people really buying uh, speculative, you know, short-term options. Like that's the thing that'll help push the VIX up. We'll see if we get there, right? Someone took a big bet that that'll happen. Um, I, I actually think, Derek, you know, we might have started this new regime of a lower of lower volatility for a while. You know, we go through these periods of higher volatility for multiple years and lower volatility for multiple years. 
feels like we probably started, and you know, it's it's early to say that because the VIX just got under, you know, 16 back in when was that? When did it fall below? At the end of May, the early June. So, you know, like does that, you know, is that kind of a sign that we've started a regime of lower volatility? It could be. This is the way it always starts. Um, we'll see if it stays down here. It's it's nice for people that are willing to use options as protection. That's great. By the way, with higher interest rates, puts are typically cheaper than calls. So being long stock with long puts actually helps quite a bit. That may be another you know reason why the VIX is you know down where it is, um, where calls are more expensive with higher interest rates. So you know using long stock with protective puts might just be a way of actually reducing volatility in the market in general. We go through a couple year period where we don't see twenty five again on the VIX. That we could we could be in that kind of a realm right now. Could be beginning that. It certainly looks that way. We'll see if that sticks. Ask me at the end of the year how we're doing there. I'll, I will definitely ask you at the end of the year, and I'll ask you at the end of the year for the twenty twenty four predictions, which everyone will be on bated breath to to see what those are. But you you know the low volatility regime also coincides with a high multiple regime. And I, I keep saying, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Earnings n- did not go down in 2022, but the market was down. Imagine you had said, oh no, earnings are going to go up. They're not going to go as much up as much. And the market's going to sell off, you know, 22% at one point. You would have said, ah, oh, that doesn't seem likely. Wouldn't earnings have to contract? No, no. Uh, this year, earnings are expected to be a little bit above last year. But what's happened is, we're trading at a higher multiple, meaning, you know, P.E. ratio. So people are willing to spend more for earnings than they were last year. And if you ever want to look at how at the end of the year, if you said we have X dollars in earnings and our margin is X and our revenue is X, you have all these things and you say, what's what's the market at? Well, what you're left with is uh, your return is a, a compilation of the dividend yield plus the change in uh, from one year to an X, but it's the market multiple. And people are willing to pay a lot of money right now. And the thing that frustrates a lot of pundits on TV is the idea that markets can stay at a very high multiple for a while. And it doesn't necessarily have to, to mean revert. So I, I don't know, Jay. I mean, it's just low volatility, high multiple. We don't, I'd have to do a correlation on that. I'm sure there's some correlation there. Oh yeah, there's no, there's no doubt. You'd probably figure out where the lag is there on that too, right? They wouldn't be day to day or you know exactly to the month, but of course, right? When folks feel, hey, it's worth you know paying up a little more for stocks, it's probably because they're a little less fearful, and the fear could be reflected in the price of options slash the VIX. So I think there's definitely a relationship there. You know, I uh, as you're doing that re- uh, research, Derek, I would like you to overlay the rate of change of interest rates too, right? Because I think in periods where, you know, interest rates are fairly stable, I think you probably find, you know, also lower volatility and, you know, I'll go out on a limb here and I don't know the answer to this, but uh, probably an expansion of the multiple as well. Probably right. Um, all right. Sounds it's like I have some homework. Yeah, this is- That's a new uh, one. This, we haven't had that one before. Stuff. By the way, I'll just mention too, a lot of people look at the put-call ratio, but the one that we look at, uh, we do it on you know some robust things like SPY and some other things. 
when the market was at its lows, you would expect the put call ratio to be much higher. But the one that we look at was actually lower than it is now. It's, it's over two right now, the one how we calculated in October, Jay, of last year, if I just get to that portion, it was like 1.6, 1.7. And on the surface, you say it doesn't make sense because I thought the VIX spikes, people are buying puts. But I also think what happened is, remember, an opening transaction could add open interest to puts, meaning if you sell a put to open, and maybe what happens is, now people are selling more puts to open, which adds to the open interest. So the put call ratio is not always just, oh, people are buying more puts because they are fearful. And I think it's just something I've been noticing and, and something I've been thinking about a little bit more, Jay. Um, I, you know why I like looking at uh, ours? Because I think it's got a better finger on the pulse of the more reactionary investor. So it's uh, the retail investor who might be more reactionary, right? So I think when you look at say the end of the S, you know, the, 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 the S and P index SPX, when you look at those options, I think you get a little bit more of an institutional reflection because just notionally they, they control so much more. It's 10 times the size of SPY. So I, I like the, the, the indicator we use because I think it's going to be more reflective of what, uh, you know, the retail investor, the retail option trader is going to do. I mean, it doesn't mean it's only that, but um, uh, there's certainly there's some institutions that use that. We always said, Derek, back in our days at uh, at the brokerage houses like TD Ameritrade that, you know, the, the retail investor, while they were always playing on the institution's field, it was always an away game for them. They were much more dynamic, right? They were a destroyer versus a, an aircraft carrier. You could switch directions quickly. Um, your size is never really a problem. You don't have to plan days ahead. You just make a move and you could be more reactionary. And I think that's the dynamic we capture at the ratio that we look at. And I, I personally, I think it's a little more accurate. Yeah. I mean, I, I think maybe some of those were more relevant back in the day, but as you say, I mean, if you're trading a full SPX future these days or, you know, the, the big boys, um, that's, that's a lot of cash. That's a lot of cash. So, and I don't know, Jay, anything else on volatility that you see that we want, we want to share? We may not want to share everything, but uh, I guess the other thing too is just in the very near term, people make a big deal about the zero day VIX and stuff. And we don't actually, it's not something we, we bring into our model. But, you know, when I look at volatility over the, the next 10 days, that's actually higher than it's been. Uh, you know, that, end of June, it got really low, meaning like on an annualized basis, right around 9%. Recently, it's been high 10%, crushed at 11 the other day. We'll see where it settles today. But I think that's a good representation of when I asked you, why isn't it lower? The very short-term volatility has been really, really low, although it has crept back up a little bit, Jay. Yeah. You know, um, I think that's a symptom of, you know, the market, you know, kind of hitting a 52 week high, right? I think that's the the whole point of, all right, you know, maybe that is enough, right? Like there, we're probably due for a 5% pull. I'm not saying that, but that's the the reflection that, um, you know, you might see from people there. I, I actually, Derek, when you, so I, th I think that's probably what it is, right? Short term is, you know, a little, uh, could be a little more reactionary also. But, you know, when you look at, like, let's pick an individual ticker, right? We don't usually 
trade individual stocks. But there are some stocks right now that might be more reflective of the sentiment at the market, right? So I, I'm going to, on the fly, propose a new segment to your podcast that I'm only the semi-permanent co-host, which is, you know, what's the ticker? What's the interesting ticker right now? And I I would throw out NVIDIA as something that's very interesting uh, uh, to everybody watching, whether you're in it or not. So I'm going to not only create my own segment, I'm also going to create the topic. Hope you don't mind. I'm just, I'm taking over your podcast. Let's do so, it. When, when we look at kind of the, um, you know, the, the, cause you could do the same volatility assessment on individual tickers, right? You could do it, right? Cause the, especially if there's a robust options market like, uh, Apple or Amazon, Google. And in this case, I picked NVIDIA. When you take a look at those, and even though NVIDIA has had this monster run, uh, after its earnings, uh, when was that, that those earnings were in late, late May, I think May 25th, right? And it had that one day, you know, largest uh, single stock market cap appreciation in history. Um, you know, when you look at the the implied volatility of that uh, of that ticker, right, the options on that uh, on NVIDIA, you know, all of a sudden you start to see that even though it's had this big speculative run up, right, or and people that would speculate would have had this uh, nice little profit on this scenario, you know, its volatility is actually pretty low comparatively, right? It's in like the mid to low 40s. So think about that. It's like three plus times the VIX, but that's actually lower than its average, which has been around in the 50s and 60s. So I also think that some of the big names, Derek, that are driving uh, the growth and the appreciation of the market this month, quarter, half a year are also showing some reduction in their implied volatility, which certainly ripples into the rest of, uh, of the S&P uh, option chain. So I think that's another thing to watch. You know, watch the tickers of the day, watch the tickers of the week and the month, and just see how is their volatility moving, because it's going to give you an indication of where the market is going to follow. You want to throw another one out there? Well, I just to take this step further, if uh, what is it like sixty-five bucks the uh, the June twenty twenty-four? Uh, by the way, no, Jay and I are not doing recommendations, so like, don't do anything. We're no, telling no, you. We're not looking telling you at the characteristics, yeah, this is, right? This is, uh, if I had the school bell, I would I would ring it because this is like class time. So, Jay, just like let's let's see what the about the one year out cost of the at the money. Uh, put is I think it's around sixty five and a half, right? If I'm seeing that right. Uh, yeah. Do you want to go out one year, say like the June, uh, the Junes? Yeah. Yeah, the June twenty four, uh, right? Sure. Yep. So if you if you didn't add the money, what what did it close today? Four thirty seven or something, right? Uh, you you mean you're talking about Nvidia? Yes, Nvidia. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I mean, you're you're at the money. If you wanted to buy at the money protection, uh, it, it's going to cost you about fifteen bucks, right? But uh, or fifteen percent annualized cost. But let's say you wanted to go down and you wanted to buy about you know ten percent lower. The three ninety or three ninety five is trading. You know, let's split the difference and say about forty five there. You know, forty five. It's about ten percent. About ten percent is your cost of hedging for a forty vol stock. So that's probably pretty reasonable. Um, I don't know if it go up or down, who the heck knows, but you know, when, when you start to look at this, you're like, okay, what's my cost of hedging? And then if Nvidia 
if its volatility dropped, its cost of hedging would drop as well. But the reason why it's the cost of hedging is over 10% because it's a volatile stock. But yeah, no, I think I think that's good. Yeah, and it's 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 embedded in the option prices. Yeah, and they, and they don't pay a dividend either, right? So that's that's the other thing. Um, that makes it a nice clear uh, example for us. I don't think they they you. shouldn't be paying a dividend. They should be putting it back into more servers, more stuff, right? Apparently, although they did make didn't they make a big a big investment? I saw this morning in a, in another company, right? Uh, they're helping somebody start up. I don't know, a couple billion. So I think they're probably using it for investment in their company versus you know paying it back to shareholders at this point. I think Taiwan Semiconductor, they're building a huge plant here in Arizona, and I'm sure they're going to be constructing. Like, that's an interesting business. I don't, I don't, I'm, I wouldn't, I couldn't tell you whether the buyers sell the stock, and I, I quite frankly don't care. But Taiwan Semi is an interesting business because they just make everybody's stuff. Like, they don't create their own chips. And apparently, NVIDIA has them make their stuff. NVIDIA doesn't make their own chips either. So, Taiwan Semi. Taiwan they like? Semiconductor ticker TSM has a volatility around thirty five. So, but by the way, it's in the middle of its range. It's not low like uh, where Nvidia is trading versus historical. So, you know, just as we're talking about volatility, I thought I'd throw that number out there, not to get you off your fundamental talking point. But if you wanted to, you know, same scenario, hedge that thing out for a year if that's where you wanted to. Let's say you wanted to do a bet between the two of them, right? That one. Because it's trading at about a hundred, hundred and three, the hundred dollar put is only going to cost you eight nine percent. So we talked about the Nvidia put costing you sixteen percent. This one's costing you just over eight percent. So interesting, Derek, to see that just that slight difference in applied volatility actually means quite a bit difference in the cost to hedge. Yeah, no, I see that. It's it's an interesting market and. Those those have definitely been in the news, and I mean, just just to think back in October, I mean, they were they were decimated. Those stocks, everything was kind of kind of low, but they they were certainly decimated. Um, Jay, do Tesla real quick, and then we'll we'll kind of go to some recommendations. You got it. So when you take a look at Tesla, right, the implied volatility of Tesla is right around fifty seven, so higher than NVIDIA. Uh, I think it's, but it's been on an up move. So this is an interesting example where the volatility has been expanding lately. So for example, uh, when it was kind of trading in that, uh, let's just say the 160 range back in the middle of May, after uh, after it had, you know, a little bit of disappointing earnings, its volatility was down to, I don't know, uh, looks like the low 50s, high 40s. It is on its way up. Volatility is shot up to over 70. Little pullback today down to the mid 50s. But this is the thing that, you know, sometimes when, a, you know, we talk about volatility goes up when the markets go down. This is an example where volatility has been trending up and the stock has been trending up, right? It's that's not, you know, completely unique, but it is less obvious than the average person would think. And the rationale there could be, hey, uh, I want, I think it's gone up too much and I want to protect it. And maybe the people are paying up for it. Uh, or it's, look, it's gone up and it's just going to go up more, right? So either one, there's higher uh, individuals are willing to pay more for the options on Tesla. But if you wanted to hedge Tesla, like the one, at the sorry, the 270s, they're going to run you about 17% 
That's the cost of the at the monies. If you want it to be 10% out of the money, as you were saying before, it's going to cost you about 12%. So still a little more expensive than NVIDIA, but you know, and it's not surprising because it's got this expanding volatility. So interesting dynamic with Tesla. I'm glad you brought that one up. I lied. I, before we go into recommendations, I just had a, a quick thought. I don't have our trading software up because the program we do, you do the podcast. Sometimes uh, it's good to, to not have too much running. But where I'm looking at the option chain, they actually have the upgrades and downgrades from analysts listed. And as I'm looking at that, I was just thinking, do they even matter anymore? Do you remember that in the 90s? Like when there was an upgrade or a downgrade, like CNBC used to do the penguins. They showed the penguins when there was more than, I think it was three investment firms that, that downgraded in a day. Or um, do, it, do they matter anymore? I don't think they matter. Do they? Maybe. So look, you, you, so you and I, I, I think, um, <laughs> okay, so I'm going to say probably, right? I mean, it's one way to kind of project corporate earnings when, you know, when you see, when an analyst takes a look at what's going on underneath the surface on an individual ticker. You know, you and I have a friend who has a firm that, you know, runs a strategy that uh, utilizes, you know, analyst recommendations and tries to find where they're late and bets against them because they're going to have to react. Right. So, um, you know, that's an interesting strategy where you're, you gather what the analysts say, you see a trend trading before the analyst up or down, you know, an analyst who's got to react and correct their expectation can cause a market, uh, an overreaction like a short squeeze or, you know, dramatic sell off can just be compounded by analysts lumping on. Like you said, you have four or five penguins on the sell-off, you know, that's going to be a pretty bad day in the stock. So I think it still matters a little bit, Derek. It's certainly um, not like it used to be because we have so many other sources for information these days to make stock decisions. I'm just, I'm just, I was very curious now and I happen to this, who is this here? I think I'm still looking at Tesla. And so there's one strong buy, two buys, three holds, four underperforms and five sales. And I, I laugh. So the average is like 2.7, um, whatever that means. But I laugh because when I first started in this business, it was probably, I think this is very early in 1994. And I went to some analyst thing. I was working at Smith Barney and this guy was a big analyst. I don't mean like tall or wide. I mean, he's, he's was pretty well known at the time and I was working in New York. So you, you would always would see these guys. And Afterwards, I went up to him and I, I thought it was a very good question. I said, how come there's no sell recommendations ever? Like as far as I can see, a hold really means a sell. And he kind of looks at me, he goes, Derek, it's a good point. But the thing is, if we put sell recommendations, and he even told me, he says, I'll never repeat this publicly, but if we put sell recommendations, when the company owns, you know, opens the new plant in Maui next year, and gives the analyst the tour, he's like, I don't get invited. So he said, yeah, hold is basically sell. This is back in the 90s, you know? But now we do see sell recommendations. So anyway. We do, we do. Interesting to see the sell recommendations on Tesla, even though it's up over 150% this year. Nice. I mean, <laughs> but but they get, and they used to get pressure. Those analysts used to get pressure. I remember, who is it? Michael Kerlack at Merrill Lynch had sell ratings in during the dot-com era on a lot of those companies with no earnings, you know, just on clicks alone. And this is what I, I heard from people who were at Merrill Lynch. They, you know, the brokers would be like, come on, you know, what are you doing? 
why, why do you keep having cell recommendations? Um, it turned out to be right, of course, but anyway. All right, Jay, let's, uh, let's go to recommendations. You got anything? Uh, sure. I got a good one and a bad one. So, um, started oh, you watching have a recommendation. You have a cell today. I got a, I got a, I got a, I have a cell recommendation. I'll finish on the cell and it goes against somebody's buy recommendation. Who's also on this podcast with us today. So my, the, the uh, what I'm watching right now is I am, uh, uh, I'm a fan of the Witcher on Netflix. Can't help myself every once in a while. That kind of stuff grabs me. So I started watching season three seems to be pretty good so far. My cell recommendation is the Indiana Jones movie. And I would tell you, Derek, well, you told me, hey, not so bad. I'm going to say it's the first time. Oh, no, really that wasn't flopped. me. That wasn't me. You, you think you, it's somebody else. What? It was fine. It was, I thought you gave me a, a you know, I you should go see it. it. No. I've seen you the trailer and that's it. No, 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 it wasn't me. Uh, I feel like I was misled uh, on this recommendation <laughs> and I convinced Multiple people who trust you that, no, Derek said we should see it. He said it was pretty mm-hmm. good. Not Not me. so good. Not, Not so good. Not, look, I'm, somebody I'm else. Gonna go, <laughs> I, listen, I'm going to see it no matter what because, uh, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. And so I have to watch anything that's Indiana Jones. But oof, not not the best. I was with five other people when I went to see it. They all followed your, your you know, phantom recommendation because I blame you now. Um, they all fell asleep in the movie. I was the only one that stayed awake. So that's yeah. my cell. That's your cell. Okay. What, what's the buy this time? The buy was The Witcher, right? I'm watching The, the Witcher. So yeah. Okay. 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 I actually don't have anything new. I mean, I, I, I do read books, but that's uh, – I, I have a pre-recommendation. My son wants to go see the new Mission Impossible movie. So we're going to try and get to that uh, this week or by the, by the weekend. I've heard it's good. And I don't know, have you, have you seen it all? Have you seen the trailers? I have seen the trailers. Yeah. I mean, look, they always look super exciting. They're always great. Uh, Tom Cruise always seems to one-up himself in those. Uh, you've seen more of them than I have, as we've discussed previously on the podcast. But uh, yeah, no, I would I would definitely go see Mission Impossible. The big one I want to see, not to steal your thunder here, is Oppenheimer. Oh, okay. Christopher Nolan yeah. movie. Yeah, so, Chris Nolan. That one's on the list. For sure. Well, I have a, I have a pre-pre recommendations. This is like a, an emerging market type call. Uh, Brad is filming right now an F1 movie, F1 car racing movie. And at the British Grand Prix last gr- British Grand Grand Prix, I guess you say it is uh, they were filming. And so he was in a race suit and his, uh, his co-actor was in a race suit and they, they have full cooperation from F1. So they actually went out for the formation lap. That's the lap, like the test lap they do before they start. They were filming. They had like a pit lane thing with his picture with Sonny Hayes. That's his character. And Brad Pitt's like, yeah, I'm kind of a guy who was around racing in the 90s, a little too old, but the team calls me back in to kind of mentor the phenom. So I don't know if it's going to be out until 2024 sometime, but I think that's going to be good because they have like full access, like they're in the pits and everything. So it's kind of cool. Listen, F1 is definitely, uh, that's a momentum trade, right? Uh, you see a lot more F1 content coming out these days. So I, I think you're probably onto something. Yep. All right. So that's my pre-pre-recommendation. All right, Jay, let's, uh, let's call it there. Um, for everyone else, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Jay. Thanks. Thanks.